3: Hey there, I'm Steph. And I'm Simon. And welcome to The Food Fight, where we offer a different perspective on food culture issues around Australia and the world.
1: We'll talk with chefs, producers, business owners and experts to hear their stories and find out what makes them tick.
3: This episode, we chat with Ian and Bree Martin from Martin's Ridge Farm in Conjola on the south coast about grass-fed beef production, small-scale livestock farming, and about how they use a background in hospitality to value add to their product. Welcome to another episode of the Food Fight Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. My name's Steph Posthumer, your host, alongside Simon Evans. G'day. Now, before we introduce our guests, we would like to do an acknowledgement of country. We would like to acknowledge the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather and speak today, and pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Okay, let's introduce our guests, Simon. We are here with Ian and Rhys Martin from Martin's Ridge Farm on the south coast down in Conjola. Thanks for joining us, guys.
2: Thanks for having us. Nice to be here.
3: Great. Now, easy way to start. Um, Some people may not have heard of Martin's Martin's Ridge Farm and what you guys do. Ian, give us a bit of an idea of how long the farm's been around and exactly what you guys are up to.
4: Sure. Look, to be honest... uh Pardon the pun, but it's a bit of a moving feast in terms of what a we're closer, doing. A bit closer. There you go. Um, we run cattle. We run pigs. We run sheep. We do it in a chemical-free environment. We do it. Our farming techniques are regenerative. But we're looking after the land, the soil. Um, the whole model of what we're doing is, with the exception of dispatching of the animal, we control the whole process. Um, to value add to what we're doing, we run charcuterie classes. Uh, we have a an eco cabin we come and stay. Um, we hire spit pigs, uh, spit and everything. Um, and as I said, uh, this just it, it keeps growing and growing. The the demand's been fantastic, um, and we keep finding new things to do. Our whole premise is we really want to connect with the people who uh,
3: purchase and, and eat our food. Awesome. Um, what do you do, Rhys? I cut up the meat. <laughs> yeah, nice. So when did you start as a butcher? Uh,
2: it was about four years ago. Um, I was in hospitality, I've always liked food. Yeah. Um, and I had an opportunity to go and work in a retail space, which was a butcher and a, and a food space. So Where was that? Uh, Shirley in okay. mainly. Um, and I was managing the, the retail space. Um, and yeah, it was in line with what mum and dad were doing at the farm. So I kind of fell into, into the meat, got a little bit more interested. Um, and through a colleague of Dad, um, got an apprenticeship in Roselle. it it's yeah, nice. called Mr Bailey and Co. Um,
3: yeah, I I've, I've loved it ever since. So cool. Yeah. natural progression. Yeah. yeah. Um, how long has the farm been around for? Like, how long have you been running running animals on your farm? We've been running far, uh, animals there for just under ten years. Yeah.
4: So we started with cattle, um, a few sheep, and over the last eighteen months, we've we've gone pretty hardcore on the pigs. Mm. Uh, and I see that as a a real growth area for a number of reasons um number one you get so many of them uh number two there's so many different things you can do with pork and pigs in terms of curing and salamis and charcuterie and all that sort of thing um so yeah look the cattle um because of the cattle we run which are built at Galloway, is a heritage breed um, takes us between two and three years to grow a steer whereas mm-hmm. most commercial angus uh, they kick them off 12 to 18 months. So yeah. we're nearly twice as long to... Um, so looking at the financial model, uh, wanting three years for your money, um, <laughs> we've yeah. sort of bought some pigs in to help the cash flow. Yeah,
3: for sure. <laughs> um, now, before we talk about the farm, because we want to get right into all aspects of the farm from beneath the ground up, um, you were in hospitality for, what, 40 years or something like that, and so was your wife, Tina? Oh,
4: 40 sounds like a long
3: time, it is. sitting it here is, yeah. looking <laughs> back.
4: <laughs> hospitality years <laughs> are slightly different. Possib-
3: possibly <laughs> we
4: could just say has been in hospitality for a while, yes. Yes, That's, um, yes. I have, yes. Um, and, and love every moment of it, although I, I, I tell the story of how I got into hospitality, and at the time I was a 17, 18 year old boy who was very, very interested in uh, sport and the opposite sex um and as you did in those days you'd get a letter from anyone who thought you were appropriate to go to their institution and i had two and one was to go to a catering management course at Wright college and the other one was to do a bachelor of business at Karingai college and i was going out and had to make a decision i said to my mum what do you think i should do mum she goes oh cooking dear that'd be lovely go and do a cooking course <laughs> and i've always said to my mum I could have been a stockbroker driving a fast <laughs> car, but you made me work every Saturday night sweating and never seeing my friends. Thank you very much.
3: <laughs> so where, like, where did you where did you first kick off? Like where did you work and stuff like
4: that? Uh, look, we were in Northern Beaches, so uh, restaurants uh, for the first 10 years. Um, I actually met uh, Tina my wife at what is now Pierlu. Um She was the apprentice and okay. uh, I was the sous chef. Um, but in those days Cottage Point Inn Baron Joey House uh, Middle Harbour Yacht Club um, we worked overseas in London for, for a period um, came back uh, we managed a ski lodge and then we bought our own restaurant um, and that sort of fixed that up and I from there in I went um, and did corporate catering
3: yeah okay Nice.
4: Anyone who owns a restaurant's crazy, just quietly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
3: We've we've come across a few on this podcast. Yes. I want I want to do one more thing before you before we move on, and maybe Simon, you've got something as well. Sorry, you haven't spoken yet, but that's no, fine. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want you to take us back to like your first year as an apprentice, or when you first started cooking, and just give us an idea of what you were actually cooking at the time, because this is a world away from. The shit Simon puts on a plate. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> An absolute world away. And, and, and prior
4: to us sitting down here, we, we had a quick conversation about how discerning uh, diners are in this day and age. Mm. Forty years ago, they knew nothing. And so you could get away with a lot.
3: Right. And people did.
4: Um, so Saturday night, uh, we were working. As a PLO, It was then called the, the Freshwater Kiosk Restaurant. Uh, 25% of the meals that went out was a lobster mornay. Frozen That's lobster. pretty really
1: popular in Wollongong, to be honest. <laughs> Not going to touch knows.
4: that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lobster mornay, oysters cool Patrick, oysters mornay, uh, and prawn cocktails.
3: Yep. Sounds about right. Back in the day.
1: Yep. I mean, it's... I think what we get to is that the... the People didn't know about provenance of animals and, and the quality. And a lot of like old, more old school cooking, a lot of these dishes that can still be great and kind of make coming back, a lot of it was, it was um, cooking them in a way that you don't taste the protein so much. Like, you know, smothering a lobster in cheese sauce, you're not tasting lobsters. When you did not have these quali- as, as quality products uh, to your door, you know, as fresh as we can get them now, mm. a lot of it was about hiding the flavor of the protein mm. and same you know, things like lamb and mint. I still like, that's just to try and make, like, la- old lamb taste nice. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's not my favourite thing. So it's, it's, it's interesting that as um, better produce and the problems of food has come up, like, the, the cooking has kind of taken a step back and there's less technique and it's mm. more produce-driven. Yeah, it's, it's Totally more important. refined in this day and age yeah. to what it was. And mm. you're right,
4: we would just, just slam it with ingredients and, mm. and all sorts of things and, and people would know no different. Yeah. You yeah. c- couldn't do that in this day and age.
3: Mm. Reese, what was it like? Um, I mean, I'm the, the son of a hospitality family as well, you know, wandering around the kitchens of, of various restaurants and stuff like that. Was that sort of how you grew up as well?
2: Yeah, um, we'd work every school holidays and we'd, you know, be plating up dishes and, and washing dishes and, and be amongst it. And um, I think part of my love for hospitality came from that you know you're always in it and you're in the action and we'd be doing catering for 400 500 people and and you'd be there you know putting the the sauce on the steak or whatever and it's just yeah very exciting uh place to be when you're young and Good pocket money, too.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there seems to be no age restrictions when it comes to employing your family yeah. as well, so you get them started and nice no and no minimum wage either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, that's, that, Could, that's still there in hospitality now. Can we now. perhaps yeah. move on to another <laughs> subject? We <laughs> can edit that out. <laughs> that's right. um, Okay, well, I think one of the interesting things and one of the reasons why we've gotten you guys on is because that transition from hospitality to farming... Um, is an interesting one and you know generally historically very divided industries but we see now uh chefs with such placing so much more importance on the connection to their producers and having that understanding of hospitality when it comes to you know building a farm and 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 raising animals and processing them um it must give you so many benefits so why don't we talk a bit about the farm itself and tell us a bit about where it is give us a setting tell us a bit about the south coast and conjola
4: um so we are a conjola uh we have a 90 acre farm which is an ex-dairy farm uh it was first run as a dairy farm in 1860 at that point in time it was 250 acres our portion is now 90 so for 110 years i think it was it was in the Martin family, and our name's Martin, and we're totally unrelated. But I don't necessarily let everyone know that. It's been in the family for years, <laughs> um, and then it was sold, and it was basically turned into a lavender farm. And they used four acres for lavender, and raised wombats. I yes. guess is the best way I could um, <laughs> describe it. So when we came along, we had grass that was three foot long with wombat holes and everything else, and I guess. Um, how I best describe us and, and what we were doing? I think we know a little bit about food, and I think we knew the potential for food, but in terms of the back end and how to farm and everything else, that has been extreme, extremely steep learning curve, mm. and a whole lot of fun. Um, but yeah, look, we went in there eyes wide open, but um, yeah, we, we had to learn on the run.
3: So what were some of those tough lessons at the start? Like, I mean, I can only imagine how hard it was, just the physical labour that was involved in in getting set up. Were you there for that as well, Reese?
2: Not as much as I am now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, I think the weather is the, probably the biggest challenge down there, isn't it? The, well, it has
4: been in the last two years. Especially yeah. Yeah. the last
2: two years, mm. yeah.
3: Mm.
1: Was it something, when, when you were working off hospitality, was sort of province of meat something you were um aware of and concerned about was was it as like a, a build-up of it, it, i want to be able to source better produce i can't get it therefore i'll do it my fucking it self. wasn't
4: just the the, the the province of the food it was um the whole process of, 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 of what transpires mm. um during the process and what you know, chemicals i put on and um, you know I, i'd been there 12 months and um you know, I didn't know anything about soil and regeneration or all that, and I had the local agronomist come in. And we were looking at a paddock and um, had a few weeds, and he took the pH and did the soil report. And he said, right, so the first thing we need to do is put Roundup all over this paddock. And I said, why? He said, because that's what we do. Yeah. First thing, we've got to kill all the weeds and, and, and put Roundup. And I said, look, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to go and talk to someone else. Yeah. And the whole premise of what we do is, at the end of the day... The earth wins. You can't battle the earth Mm. and defeat it. It will always defeat you. And that's I I look at the the, the pesticides, the herbicides, and and, and Roundup's my pet hate. Um, All it does is unbalance everything. You can kill 90% of things, but 10% of things go, hey, this is great, now I'm going to grow. So then you can't use Roundup. You've got to use something else to kill them and something else to kill them. And it's just, just a vicious cycle. And all you're doing is destroying the environment. Yeah. You know, yeah. If you leave it alone, it will survive. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's such a short space of time that we've been using these chemicals as well. I think that's kind of what most people don't realise. It has, it's, it's you know You've taken agriculture over the human sort of uh, lifespan. Can, can I make a point?
4: Yeah. You do a welcome to country, and I love that. But every time I hear the welcome to country, I think, we've been here for 250 years. Exactly. The Aboriginals were here for 50,000 years. Look at the difference... When they had it, and yeah. look at what we've done the last two hundred and fifty
1: years. Exactly, yeah, it's, it's massive, and um, I mean, it's great that people are looking back to traditional practices of, of land management. And there's got to be a reason that uh, average people thrive in this country for so long, because not I mean, it's the longest continuous running culture in the world. So there's there's a reason behind it. There's lots to learn from that. Correct. And they weren't using Roundup.
4: They they wanted to live with it. We want to bash it over the head. Mm. That's mm. that's the analogy I use mm. right. Well.
3: We'll get on to the animals in one second, but we'll we'll get on to it now. But um, why? And I'll give this one to you again, Ian. Um, like what what is the difference? Because I think that like I think for us potentially and definitely for you guys, people have a like we have a better understanding of you know the way that people. Manage manage livestock and things like that than your average punner who literally knows zero. But for for the average punner who absolutely knows zero, can you tell us a bit about the differences between the practices of running livestock like you go, as you guys do, and uh, and and what, what happens at a at a sort of a different larger commercial scale, and why those differences are so important? Maybe um, do you want to answer this one, Reese? you been talking about. Uh, we, we, we can talk for hours. You guys share. I'll, I'll yeah. go
4: quickly, then I'll, I'll throw it to yep. Race. The basic premise of what we do is the the cow, the the steer is a ruminant. They eat grass. They are not designed to eat grain. The industrialised industry, food industry, feeds the animal grain, and and the main reason for that comes from the United States after the Second World War, they had a glut of corn, they said what are we going to do with the corn, let's give it to the cattle. So now we have all these animals being fed grain. Now the, uh, one of the main reasons why they're fed grain is because it gives an extremely consistent product. If you want to be selling to supermarkets at the big end of town, you need a consistent product. Our meat is natural; it has no chemicals, and it eats grass. And when people say to me, "What do you finish your meat on?" Uh, it's finished on grass, More grass. where it started, mm-hmm. because that's what they're supposed to do. Now, the byproduct of that is our animals take a lot longer to mature than animals that are finished in feedlots. The other problem with feedlots, and although they're cutting back now, is you'd stick a thousand head of cattle into a feedlot, you give it all grain, and one would get a cold. So they would all give a, get a cold, and they go. We can't have them with colds. We're going to give them antibiotics in their food. Maybe, maybe just just to give us an overview
1: of, of what a kind of feed lot looks like. I think there's a lot of these terms, and even chefs who, who know that these things are either bad or good, but don't probably know the specifics of it. They've probably never seen it. Um, so maybe just describe what a kind of uh, w- what the what happens when the. Okay. Cows so get we we
4: take animals. They eat grass, and then for the last three to six months of their life, they're stuck in a feed lot. Now a feedlot on if, if a feedlot was our the size of our farm, which is ninety acres and we currently run thirty-five head of cattle, you would probably have five hundred head of cattle on our farm. Mm. There would be troughs that are lined up and every day they would come along and pour all the grain into the troughs and they would eat. And they would defecate everywhere, they would compact the soil, they would absolutely destroy it. But it's not important to them because they're not eating grass, they're not the soil condition doesn't matter. Mm. And they would be finished off in, at the age of 15 to 18 months. They would be sent to the abattoir. The next ones would come in. And it's just, it's a food factory. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's a very effective food factory. Mm. But it's not natural. It's not real. Yeah. Um,
1: and it's, it's only, only taken into account that they want to fatten the animals up. Correct. Right, over anything else. Mm-hmm. And
4: as I said, they want a consistent product. It has a certain fat score, rating, weight, everything else.
3: And so, Reese, then, tell us how, like, let's talk about the the soil. Why is it so important? And, and what does running your livestock, you know, naturally do for our land? We've talked about how we've destroyed it. What does... Because I think there is also a misconception, you know, when people say, be a vegetarian because it's better for the environment. Well you know when we talk about regenerative agriculture um, sometimes heating meat can be better for the environment because it's restoring our soil.
2: Yeah that's correct I mean people think trees are good carbon sinks and they take carbon from the atmosphere and store it in the soil but grass is a really effective way of doing that too and if you're managing livestock correctly you can sink lots of carbon into grass into perennial pastures and having our cattle on the on the pastures for a short amount of time um, Rotating them, allowing that regrowth, allowing the the manure to decompose into the ground, um, is a great way to do that. Mm.
3: And tell us a bit. Like, let's move on to animals. Simon, have you got anything else on this? Well, I was going to move on to
1: from the kind of uh, onto the butchery side. Is what what do you see between? A you know, grass-fed animal do you produce to compare it to something more commercially grown. Like as, as a butcher, what difference do you see in the actual meat and the bone structure and things like that? In the
2: in the grass first grain. Yeah, or yeah, grass
1: first grain, or even even um, what you guys are kind of more slow movement compared to very commercialized industrialized um, products, which I imagine you haven't seen for a little while. But uh. yeah, well the butcher <laughs> shop I work in,
2: we buy mostly directly from the farm. Yeah, but I yeah. work in Sydney halfway through the week, and then and then the farm halfway uh, half the other week. So. Um, our animals are smaller. They're a small breed. Um, the flavour is more pronounced. It's quite gamey. I mm. um, find the belties. In, in terms of grain and grass, um, the fat from a grass-fed animal is very yellow. It's from the pigment in the grass, keratin. Uh, and that's more pronounced as the animal gets older. So, I don't know if you've seen a dairy cow, when they're quite yeah. old, it's like fluorescent yellow. Um, and as they're younger, it's still yellow, but, but not quite there. Um, grass-fed is not... Not as tender as grain-fed, but um, the flavour makes up for that for that difference. And like, I always
1: find it weird that like tenderness is the benchmark of meat. Yeah, and like we have teeth, like we can chew. Like like people make this. Like, we've had it when we've we've used uh, old dairy cows cow uh, before, and some of the comments we will get was like, "Oh, it's so flavourful, so tasty." A little, little bit chewy though. Yeah, and you're like, <laughs> why is that like like why, why did that negate like this amazing piece of meat. Like why, why, I don't quite understand why, why chewing is such a bad thing when mm. it comes to meat. It's, it's always been a, a baffling thing. Well, I think
4: to too, uh, in, in choosing the muscle you're going to cook or eat, it's this contradiction between flavour and mm. tenderness. Now, I can serve you a piece of long fillet, which will melt in your mouth and taste like nothing. Yeah. Or I can do a rump cap or something, and as we move down the chain... Mm. Um, I'd just like to use a wine analogy to describe meat... Every year, winery will put out a vintage. It's different from the year before. And that's like our meat. It's, mm. it, it changes depending on when you knock it on the head and, 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 and when you butcher it. Mm. Um, we've just been through three years of drought um, and grass-fed. We didn't have the consistency that we'd like. At the moment, our animals are just absolutely gorgeous, shiny, and, and looking fantastic. Um, the other thing is is age. Our animals are twice as old as other animals. So we will have more flavour. Mm. But with an older animal, you might have to chew just once more.
1: Yeah. I mean, those differences year to year in wine are celebrated on, on, on the most part. Obviously, there's wineries that want to make a consistent product year to year. But, yeah, the diff- difference in, in vintage of wine is something that people like and want to see. And they, they can talk about how different years are different and mm-hmm. the, you know, the positive and negative. Correct, something. yes. Um, but, yeah, when it comes to uh, products to feed yourself, it's, it's, it seems a... All come down to consistency and of, you know, of size and shape and, and texture and all these things. When, when that variation is something we should be looking at and, and kind of celebrating, mm. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the climate we live in, especially Australia.
3: Mm. Let's talk about let's talk about the pigs, Reese. What what sort of pigs have you got? Tell us a bit about how you guys run them and manage them.
2: We've got a few different breeds, and that's um, I guess what we're experimenting with is, is seeing what they look like, the quality of the meat you know, if we're doing small goods, what breeds are good for small goods, what are good for retail, um, and that takes time, and, and we've got a few at the moment. So we've got boar is a duroc, it's a very long animal, it's an American breed, very good for bacon because it's very long loins. Um, we've got some Hampshire sows, which are a shorter, stockier um, breed, and they cross well, so you get this, you know, short, stocky, long animal. Together they have a, a good size. Um, And then we've got a Berkshire boar and a few other crosses, Hamrock, which is the cross of the the duroc boar and the hampshire, then put her over again with, say, the Berkshire and see how that goes. And and over time, because we've got the ability to talk to the farmer, to the butcher, to the chef who's cooking it, we can refine a a really great breed that we're happy with and and what we can use it for, Mm. Um, which is really cool, you know, how often can you say that yeah
3: that's really cool yeah you got the full experiment science lab (laughs) right on the property yeah complete
2: control (laughs) and they're all different they've all got different temperaments and they all have different um personalities and things that they do some root more some don't you know some dig out the ground some some don't touch the ground at all so it's interesting to see in regards to management too um how you manage them and how how they work in your in your landscape mm. it seems like a lot of breeds
1: in the uk where i'm from is there's a lot uh, it seems a lot more uh, interest in different types of breeds of animals mm. and that's something that you see listed on on menus um as well as so it's kind of rather than grain fed or grass fed it's it's generally going to be the, be the breed of the animal um but it seems australia and obviously america as well and a large part of the world is breeds have been very homogenized to give that consistency and be very kind of middle of the road um and not have those variations so it must be very interesting to be able to get different breeds and play around to kind of work out what works best for you guys
4: it's amazing the 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 difference between uh, the meat that comes out between the Mm. the breeds um and again we keep using that word consistency which is what supermarkets everyone else want um and you know i wouldn't necessarily call our meat consistent mm. um, because of the different breeds and, and, and everything else. Um, but I think, you know, for instance, the, the Berkshire is just an absolute wonderful pig for, for small goods. Yeah, love making salamis and, yeah. and all those you know, cured necks and things out of a, out of a Berkshire. The cross Duroc um, Hampshire is just beautiful as a, as a plate meat. Mm. Um, so we're able to offer those different things, and that's why I said we're not consistent, but we're yeah. not consistent in a really good way.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've, we've got these middle whites. Um, back in Wales, and then the fat it would be like that much fat wow. on a chop. Yeah. It was insane. Yeah. And you just looking at you like, that is awesome. But you know, you, they could never sell that in the supermarket.
0: You couldn't, couldn't do that look here. Correct, yeah. That, that won't work here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But
1: they do amazing. So much flavor and a smaller breed. But yeah, this massive fat cap and it was just r- just rendered down beautifully. This like soft, amazing fat. And again, I yeah, said, so it was just something you wouldn't, you wouldn't get um, unless you we were working with these amazing farmers we
3: did there. Mm. Just out of interest then, how do you go about selecting like breeds how did you decide in at the start okay these are the breeds we want like <laughs> you, we want belted galloways and you know this that and the other and is experimenting with breeds something that you'd like to continue doing and and, and another interesting thing for me would be you just mentioned a, a breed then that i've never heard of simon but mm-hmm. like how do you find a, a different breed you're like oh we want to try one of these like you know can do you have access to all different types of breeds if you can import what you need
4: Oh, you can certainly get hold of um, a whole lot of different animals. I mean, certainly uh, we're after a heritage breed. Um, and thanks to Mac- McDonald's, I didn't want to go anywhere near Angus mm. because every man and his dog... And look, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with the Angus. Yeah. But in terms of marketing, in terms of what we're doing, um, Angus to me is associated with commercialised, industrialised Yeah. food. It's so.
1: it's, I mean, it's the standard in Australia almost. Correct. and like I said, there's
4: nothing wrong with the animal. Um, we actually just butchered one, and it was was really nice. Mm. Um, we've gone for a rare breed. Um, it's unique. It's different. It looks gorgeous on the landscape. And Part of what we're doing is come and have a look and everything mm. else. Um, because it's a belter-galloway, we tend the hides. So when an animal goes, we'll, we'll use the whole body, including, yes. including the hide, which we sell. Um, the meat is, for me... Um, a typical of a grass-fed animal, mm. it is heavy. It's it's big. It's it's robust. Um, it's it's not super fatty or anything else like that. But it's different. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do is different. Mm.
2: Do you
3: reckon? Do you reckon you'll keep experimenting with different pork and pig breeds? breeds? Yeah, uh,
2: absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I don't think you're ever there. You're always trying to perfect something. So, yeah. And it's gonna be different. You might have a breed, but then you might have a a, a breed that's not necessarily a good specimen, and you might have to get another one and keep experimenting with that. Um, But also if we don't have, if we have something that we think fails, but we can still use it for for a purpose, having the ability to butcher and either use it for small goods or use it for retail or or cook it if we're doing events. um, I don't think anything is really a failure. It's just how to use that product to its its best. And we've got the ability to do that.
3: Mm. Now, we'll change tact a little bit. I want to know about that original sort of decision to move down the south coast and buy a farm. Farmers notoriously have done it bloody tough, and particularly in recent years with the drought and with all these environmental factors going on. Um, Having that background in hospitality... Was the original idea to have a farm that was more than just production, that actually sort of invited people onto the farm to experience things, to have a commercial kitchen where you can do workshops and classes, and you can value add to the, you know, the animals that you raise and and all those sorts of things, or is this just a sort of a natural development as you as you went along?
4: I, I think it's been a combination of both. I, I mean, one of the reasons we bought the farm, I felt, um, given our experience. Uh, we had the knowledge to, to, to speak to chefs and speak to people about mm. what they wanted. And I, I, I see a whole lot of farmers who, who um, make wonderful produce but don't know how to market their produce, don't know where to sell it and, and everything else. Now if we just had a farm our size and we were raising animals, sending them to the stockyard selling them, um, we couldn't feed ourselves. The mm. uh, whole premise of our business model is we're valuating all the way through. And that has grown. As you talk about, you know, we're now running charcuterie classes. We're we're looking to do sausage making, uh, butchery classes. We do events. You can come and have a dinner party um, with all seasonal produce from the farm. So we've opened it up in in four or five different revenue streams that probably traditional farmers, uh, they're not open to that sort of thing.
1: Mm. It's been, uh, yeah, the communication between farms and chefs has always been um, something that's, that's been pretty tough. Um, it, it's required a lot of effort just to find people. I mean, social media has helped me that massively um, to connect people and be able to see stuff. But it, it's definitely something where, as a chef, you, I mean, just, just been working down the coast and trying to find more producers, a lot of time it, it takes word of mouth. Um, so, definitely having that avenue where you can invite people in um, and, and actually let them see and show and communicate, that must be pretty amazing. So, how has the sort of feedback been from other chefs working with you with that communication?
4: It, it's not as easy as it sounds yeah. for chefs to use food with provenance. There's yeah. a whole lot of challenges on both both sides. And I think a lot of people on the farm don't understand the rigours of being a chef and, and, and uh, the, how time poor they are um, and that consistency and everything else. Uh, for me, COVID has helped because a lot of uh, menus are now restructured and you're seeing a lot of set menus where there's opportunity to use um food with produce Yeah, um, it's that a la carte you know, if someone came to me and said look I need uh, 100 pork cutlets once a week yeah. I'm going to say no look that's not going to happen but if you come to me and say look I'll take 100 pork cutlets every two months because I keep changing my menu mm. um, the other thing for me is if they're going to take my produce I, I, I really ask that they acknowledge the provenance and, and, and tell the story Yeah, because cool. um, mm. that's what it's about mm. and that's for me that's the marketing advantage to them that hopefully they'll have customers come in who are seeking provenance in their food.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how, I mean, it's always, it's always customer driven. If the customer is asking for this information um, and wanting to see this information on menus, then that trickles down and then chefs will start to do it. And that means they have to obviously fi- find these places where they can, they can source stuff. So it's very customer driven um, in that case. And that's, that comes out of education to the consumer.
3: So, Ian, how have you then found the response from chefs in the local community, and sort of who are you dealing with, and how are they using your products? How do you develop that relationship? Uh,
4: look, um, Instagram's a wonderful uh, medium. It for is, these isn't things. it? It, it's, it is. Uh, it's great. That's not necessarily real all the time, but it is a, a way of um, making contacts. Um, and certainly, we we get a number of people. Um, unfortunately, as I said, I, I think a number of chefs think it's. Don't quite understand the challenges of, of yeah. dealing with someone with food Yeah, I mean, in,
1: in a kitchen, you you need and want consistency, and nature is anything but consistent.
4: Correct. And um, but uh, having said that, uh, I mean, uh, someone who dealing with is, is John from South and Albany, and and he has his head around. I, I love the way he structured his menu in terms of as a set menu. Mm once a week, totally changing and everything else. And, and he's taken a few bits of our product and, and we're having a conversation about how I can get pork on the menu and, and things like that. And that's that's the key is to be able to have that conversation with the chef. Mm-hmm. And I guess we've got the advantage that I, I understand the pitfalls and, and what they go through and, and supply and everything else like that. Um, so for me, it's a case of try this, try that. What are you looking for? Um, because we do whole animal butchery, we can give a whole range of different cuts, especially with the beef, the whole cuts that people yeah. haven't seen before and there's all that that, you know, people who slice and dice and use carton beef just, just can't use. Mm.
3: Mm. And what about what about getting produce to uh, people that aren't chefs?
4: Um, oh, look, that's uh, word of mouth, a big one. Again, uh, we've been doing markets, which has been extremely successful. <laughs> which markets? Uh, the Borough Lake Farmers Market. Mm -hmm. which is the first one we've jumped into Um, but I'm not doing fresh meat there I'm doing value-added products so we're doing our salami our bacon sausages broths and that sort of thing Um, the fresh meat is basically word of mouth I'll have an animal come up we do packs I send a a message out next thing I know the animals sold so today you know we're not advertising um, we're picking up more and more local people Uh, we we really encourage people to come to the farm we've got a, a a shop for one bit of word where people can come and visit and, and, and buy food, but just talk to me and people are coming. Oh, do you do tongue? And do you? Well, yeah, we do. Yeah, <laughs> I can never find that. So one comes yeah. every animal. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, and that's the whole thing. So I've got an animal coming up. I know I contact this person for the tongue and this mm. person for this and this person for that, and it's uh, it's great for us because it gives us the option of being able to use the whole body.
1: Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean that's something that um, is, people are still struggling with awful um, and it's still hard to put on menus. Uh, and sell. So to see that people are looking f- looking out and, f- and requesting these things, yeah, is but p- awesome. people
4: who want awful are fanatical about
1: yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's it's, not a lot of them, yeah, but there's no kind of middle ground with it. No, no, will, no, like, no, love it or hate it.
3: Yeah, oh, it's interesting because, and and the internet is a wonderful thing. Like having a newsletter or having an Instagram page where you can sort of shout out to the people that follow you and say, "Hey, we've got this," and then all of a Absolutely. sudden it's sold is fantastic. I, I remember speaking to a lamb farmer from um, down near Goulburn, and he was telling me that he's just, you know, in the process of attending markets and having a newsletter and all that sort of thing, he found out that the Ethiopian community were fanatical about lamb heads, you know yeah. what I mean? So, he's, he like, every single lamb that he raises, the head is gone, because... The Ethiopian communities found out that, yeah. you know, this is yeah. the guy and he's got the good ones. Yeah. You know, so. Well, pig's
4: heads are another one. Pig's heads, um, yeah. Oh,
1: pig's heads are like a little chef secret. Like, if you're going <laughs> to get a pork terrine, yeah. like, it's probably going to be heads. So <laughs> many options with a pig's <laughs> we're not, head. We're not going to list it on the menu, but we're going to be using heads for that terrine.
3: You want to, of course. Yeah. It's do you, delicious. Do you, do you like, sell your uh, charcuterie and stuff like that um, commercially as well or, or through the farm and through the market? Oh, look,
4: we've had. Um, People who have approached us. Uh, I know there's a wine bar in dollar selling it. Um, oh, yeah.
3: The Ruse? Cupid. Uh,
4: no, the ruse, not
2: the Ruse. What's the social, isn't it? It's new, yeah. Yeah, I, okay. I think it's called the social. Yeah, nice, okay. Yeah.
4: Cupids were chasing us. My problem to date has been supply. Mm. Yeah. Um, we had a batch of salami made. We probably had it on 60 kilos. We just sold that through retail. We're
3: yeah. Just gone. Just goes. Um,
4: so, what Reese and I have been doing today is preparing the meat for the next batch and that goes off, and we're doing a bigger range, so we're doing the pancetta, we're doing the, the cured neck, gonchali, everything. I um, don't I'd like to get to the point that we are able to supply commercial operations.
3: Yeah. That'd be nice. It'd be cool to have 20, some art. Uh, it just takes a lot of planning ahead. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, <laughs> well, it's 24 age.
4: Because it's charcuterie, um, it's got great shelf life. Yeah. It's something you can give a chunk to a wine bar or something, they can slice it as they go. Mm. Um, it's not going to go, it would go off eventually, but yeah. it's not like a fresh it, pro- it holds produce. Well.
3: Mm. Mm. um reese what about tell me a bit more about the butchery side of things having these animals that are raised in a respected respectful way a natural way is how, how does a butchery differ because i mean you can butcher a pig or a cow in numerous different ways how do how do how do things differ
2: I think everyone breaks a, an animal differently and everyone cuts differently. But, um, yeah, it's very rewarding to, to cut an animal for someone who, who you've raised yourself. You know, mm. it's very rare that happens. Um, but we, we take a lot of pride in, in um, making sure we use every part of the animal. Dad will cook broths from all the bones. We'll save everything. Um, and the way that we sell the packs, too, to, to consumers is great because they get things that they wouldn't normally buy and it really challenges them to cook in a different way or, or to use things they wouldn't be accustomed to. Um, so it's kind of an education that way as well. Mm. And we can sell the whole animal without, without trouble. So it's, um, yeah. Does, yeah. That mean, does that
1: mean you, you would maybe break an animal down differently to another butcher who knows that this is going to go to mince, that's going to go to dog food? When you are using everything, does that mean you, you are more particular with the way you
2: butcher? Yeah, and over time we've developed ways of using things and, and sometimes, you know, at the start, we probably did a lot more sausages because we didn't know what to use <laughs> certain cuts for. But, um, you know, now I've pretty much got in my head every muscle I know exactly where it's going um, and, and I just get down to it and, and get it done. Um,
4: I, I think, too, there's, there's two different sorts of butchers. There's a butcher that is cutting just for the main cuts mm. and the rest of it either goes to mince or sausages. You know, to get something like a spider steak out, you've got to go looking for it and you've got to cut it out. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we do. Um, when I sold the catering business, I went and did my butchery apprenticeship and I was at Granville um, doing the course. There were 18 people in the course. Mm. Only two of them worked for a butcher who broke bodies. Yeah, well. The rest of them sliced and diced carton Mm. meat. So uh, they they weren't butchers. Yeah, Butchers break bodies. Yeah. And they understand the cooking processes of all the muscles and everything else like that. And that just, that really concerned me Mm. that here we are, 16 out of 18, were not learning how and to break a And you can still get your full qualification without Correct. working
1: in a... That's you know, quite a Correct. damning kind of point there, isn't it?
2: Mm. Where I worked, we, we never bought box meat. It was just you had to cut the animal. Mm. If someone wanted chuck, you've got to go and grab the chuck. You've got to bone the whole thing out, trim it, slice it to their, to their preference. I mean, mm,
1: that's most people's uh, view of a butcher, is what they do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people, people knew that most butchers don't, don't do that. Um, they'd be quite shocked, really.
3: Um. I want to I ask a question. I might just ask a few, because this, I think this is the first time we've had a butcher on the podcast, is it? Yeah, or, or butchers. We've spoken of, to Grant and Laura from Feather and Bone before, but we didn't talk so much about the butchery, butchery yeah. side of things. Um, so I want to ask you some questions of the butcher while we've got you guys here. But uh, I want to know about... Where do I even start? There's so many things. Like, what does a day in the life of a butcher actually look like? Like, are your early starts, like long days? Is it hard on your body? A lot of physical work?
2: <laughs> yeah, you're on your feet all day. Um, it can be quite hard on your neck and my wrist gets quite sore. Um, especially when you're breaking everything, you know. The bodies come in on Monday, you get your two, two bodies of beef, you get your ten lambs, you get your three pigs, and it's just Slow break meat. them all down, put them into primals. Vac what you need to, if you can, hang it up because that's better to treat it. Let it dry out. Um, figure out what you're gonna do with it for the rest of the week. Sort your wholesale out and, and fill your counter. And you know, Saturday, pack it all up. Monday comes again and, and you do it all again. So you, you're in this rhythm. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a hard job. You, they're long hours and you're on your feet a lot, but it's very rewarding, especially when you're doing it with, with really great produce. Um, Yeah, cool. I love it.
4: Sitting above that is the fact that you need to manage the whole body. Mm. So, and you've got to sell the whole body. So on a a body, you get three kilos of long fillet, but you get about 15 to 30 kilos of chuck. Yeah. So we need to be selling the chuck. Uh, And that's the the management in a whole beast butchery is quite Mm. dynamic that you need to be looking at what's coming up and how am I going to do that? So if I can't sell it like that, well, what else can I do? It's Mm. not just a case of putting a slab of meat in the shop.
2: You've got to have an avenue for everything.
4: Correct. And you've got to have options. So that's not quite at the moment. We're going to make beef burgers. We're going to do something.
2: And those customers are very important, like you were saying before. You have someone that wants the liver or the tongue or that likes this particular cut, so you're on the phone to them straight away and you tell them, tell them it's in and, and you can move it that way too yeah. and they appreciate that because you're thinking of them so you're making this really nice connection with your customers
3: mm. that's sorry Simon We you going to say something?
1: Um, I was just going to comment on the I think the there is similarities between, between cooking I think with butchery and, and enjoying that repetition yeah, that, yeah I was that thinking that. Getting <laughs> like, like incrementally better, like like I've I, <coughs> done um, a massive amount of it, but we've always bought like whole animals and whole cuts, and even like filleting different fish. Like every time I do one, I'm trying to get it perfect. I'm trying to work to get get like not not nick that bit and not take that bit off. And enjoying that and, and finding joy in that repetition of the same actions, the same movements, and refining them um, is something not everyone can do. Mm. Um, but I think it's something you have to love. Um, to be a chef and it, and it sounds very much similar but it's also a, the
4: excitement about getting a great piece of produce yeah yeah be it a fish be it a piece of meat mm. it's exciting yeah and, and no matter it. how long you've been doing it you still get excited have a look at this you know Rhys will come to me and say hey dad look at this body it's mm. you know it's
1: exciting yeah exactly yeah and i think you have to keep keep finding that excitement as well yeah. um yeah and it's the same with chefs like when we, we just got some a new beef um supplier in at Bangalore and it's a limousine uh, across Angus and um, just came in just beautiful real yellow fat yep. just real nice marbling for a grass animal from Southern Highlands biodynamic and Organically raised, um, and it came in, and we, I was just—I was literally walking around with the first cut, just like showing it to people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, Ronnie, was like, oh, look at my school, meat. Old school Steakhouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I was just, I was just they
4: yeah. just don't understand, do they? Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to
1: show. I wanted to, you know, wanted to tell everyone, you know, about the farmer and the stuff that our, our butcher had, had passed on to us, and yeah, just getting excited about these these little things.
3: Mm. Yeah, I like. I just have to agree with your point about that—enjoying the repetition and getting better at it. I remember. Yeah, the last place I was in the kitchen. Like, we used to cure a lot of salmon because we did breakfast and dinner. We used to cure a lot of salmon. And uh, and uh, when you just get, like, a tub of salmon and someone's, like, you know, in the prep kitchen, they're, like, here, like, process all these. Mm. And, like, you're, like, all right, well, I know I've got my next, like, two hours of work, like, mm-hmm. ahead of stop me. Stop, and yeah. And I'm just going to, like, set up and then just... You know, just get yeah. into the zone and 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 you're away, yeah. but that's just day in day out for a butcher, I assume, right?
2: yeah, and you really uh, appreciate it when a body's nice, you really take care of it, not that you don't take care with the other bodies, but you know it's it's something special um, mm. yeah what yeah. are
1: the what are the kind of uh, the 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 little sneaky insider butcher cuts you're liking right now because always seem to be like the spider steak is one that spider's good uh, yeah i love it more provenance of recently i've seen a few more people talk about that and and use that
2: yeah um there's a nice little cut in the shoulder called the terrace major or Mm. petite tender little tender it's very very tender um like a fillet you can cook it like that it's long and thin and um lots of flavor too because it's from the shoulder um the muscles that sit on the shoulder blade are really nice too like everyone's heard of the flat iron um mm. that sits there but on the other side there's um, there's another piece of meat that takes a lot of denuding and and um cleaning up before you can eat it but it's beautiful lots of flavor what's it called it's called a few different things it's called
1: this is the, this is the problem like, yeah
2: <laughs> this i've happened. been heard it's called i've uh, been told it's called the undercut um i think it might be called the sierra steak in America, I think yeah, I've seen a, a video where they've yeah. the Sierra steak yeah. But um, I, I I learnt off uh, a butcher who did his apprenticeship in England, so we used all the English terms. So it was always yeah. the undercut to me. It's quite confusing with the uh, English and then even
1: like European and then American yeah. and then Australia. and here you know, we're Australian. Here like we yeah, chuck them all in yeah, and grab whichever one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um.
3: Do, you, do you think we face a challenge because? People know what an knife fillet is. People know what a sirloin, a scotch fillet, T-bone... Like, these sorts of things, and we're just used to them. And we talk about, you know, like... If you talk about sustainability, it's like... We want people to demand other cuts of the beast... Just as much as they demand a scotch fillet. So, whether it's the undercut or whatever it might be... Like do you see a future where we've educated the public enough for people to realise... Because I feel like that's happening, for example, with flat iron or Flank or whatever, that people are like, I know what that is Mm. and I know that that's a good cut because I've seen it on menus and things like that and now I'm going to demand it from the butcher. Is this just a matter of, over time, like, people get accustomed to the names of these cuts and they're like, yep, I've seen it in restaurants, I've seen it in butchers, I've heard about it on podcasts. And now I'm going to start asking for it and now it's going to start selling for what its value is as compared to the rest of the cuts that would be considered prime. Um, And we're going to sort of live in a world where not every chef and not every consumer just wants i fillet it and scotch fill it and, well uh, those cuts aren't cheap anymore <laughs> no, <definitely laughs> because <not>. that's <laughs> already kind of happened
2: um but it, it's also important to think that there are only two flanks on a body as well you know there's not a lot of that cut so really there's a lot of other things that need to be used mm. uh secondary cuts so something that comes to mind but um i guess it's that relationship you have with your your butcher or your fishmonger or whoever you're talking to um and what produce you're buying and, and then recommending stuff and you and you you know, going out of your comfort zone and, and buying something different and maybe learning to cook something in a different way than just chucking it on the barbie and putting the lid down and coming back eight minutes later, you know? Um, but
4: I think, too, it's uh, that's the relationship we want with our customers. And, and, and yeah. we'll get people who will just come to us and say, what have you got? And they want something different. They don't want a scotch. They don't want a sirloin. Oh, I've got this and that. And people will come and say, can I have all the butcher's cuts? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a real thirst Knowledge and I think for us, it's a bit of a competitive advantage because we're able to supply the whole the whole lot. Yeah. Whereas a lot of butchers will look at you sideways and say, I've oh, never heard of that cut of meat.
1: There's some surly fucking butchers around. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this has made it hard for even chefs and um, general public to actually know about these cuts. Because a lot of times you go in a butcher shop and very much feels like they don't want you there. And so you're going to be like, oh, 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 just a the sirloin then, please, rather than have a conversation. So I, I always get really excited as a chef that, when i meet new producers or a new butcher or someone who is as passionate about food as i am where we can have conversations and be like okay what what is a cool cut like okay how much of that can we get what can we get that for how can we get on the menu um and i think consumers want that as well they want that education they want that ability to go somewhere talk to someone who is knowledgeable can tell you you know where it's from to how to cook it i think that's that's really important and that, that seems like it's um Maybe going back to a more old school butchery um, kind of vibe, but it seems like it's coming back uh, in recent years. Well, I,
4: was, I was talking to a, a French chef the other day, um, and they said, "Look, in, in France, I can walk in, the truck would come round. There's all oh, you can get ox cuts, cuts in the supermarket, hanging there, <laughs> age cuts, <laughs> and I can have this." And she said, "I walk into Australian butchers, and they just look at me yeah. like I've got three heads." And 100 percent correct, but I, I, I don't get it. To me, if you're going to be a successful small butcher Mm. that's the only way to stay in business yeah
1: for sure
2: Mm. being approachable i think um you know butcher shop can be an intimidating place especially for someone who doesn't go to one or if you're you know a bit younger or something and you walk in and heaps of meat everywhere
3: well i think there's a lot of people that don't know what a butcher shop looks like to be honest because they're just used to shopping at supermarkets and that's and that's where you get your food not just your meat but you get every item of food from a supermarket because they have it all so yeah like Hopefully, like we've banged on enough on this podcast and there's enough people talking about it in the media and there's enough people on Instagram promoting it and on the internet talking about it and people are getting to know people like yourselves and seeing where the value lies, that people are starting to move away from your supermarkets and realising that there is so much reward in developing a relationship with the people that produce your food. <laughs> quite Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Totally. Before we wrap up about the farm itself uh, and what you guys do, um, is there anything else you want to touch on? Because we, we do want to move on and just talk a little bit about what the tw- last 12 months has been like down on the south coast for a producer who we haven't spoken to yet. But um, anything else you want to touch on before we go there?
4: Yeah. Um. A couple of things. Yeah, I think we were just talking um, before about Instagram and the, the, the food with provenance movement and the regenerative farm movement and you see a whole lot of pretty pictures on Instagram and tags and everything else like that. I think at the end of the day, it's, it's an absolutely wonderful concept, but food's got to be good. It's got to taste nice. Um, you can't just hang your hat on a bad product and try and sell it. And I think some people, you know, need to be focused on the flavour and the taste and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, the other comment I want to make was I've been really surprised in while we've been doing this as to the age and demographic of the people who buy our food. Mm. And that is young people who seem to place more worth on and will pay a dollar for food that they know the provenance of and understand what's going on. Yeah. And they're the ones that I've found are adventurous and who are going, what have you got for me? You know, throw that spider steak at me and let me try things and, and things like that. Mm. Uh, and I think that's really encouraging. I and mean,
1: that bodes very well for the future. Um, exactly right. So for farmers and hospitality business yeah. in general. That These younger people are, are I mean, maybe growing up with social media and being able to see these different things and having knowledge of them um, and being able to, I mean, yeah, the information that people have at their fingertips now um, is, is insane and, and people can... can find out why regenerative agriculture is better. Um, so there's It's generally a push towards more sustainable practices everywhere. Um, I mean, you, you even see it in the bar here. Like, young people are much more happy to drink less but drink better. Yeah. So, rather than coming in and drinking the cheapest wine and, and having two bottles of it, they'd rather have one good bottle. I think across the board, people are, younger people in particular, are looking at spending their money more wisely. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a great, great um, thing for the future. I,
3: I, I remember talking we've done a previous podcast with Phil Lavers from Moonacres Farm in Fitzroy Falls that won delicious produce awards like best producer in Australia essentially mm-hmm. and he said that he was he, he said that his number one clientele is a young mother who yep. understands that organic food that's raised naturally is good for them and it's good for their family and they're the ones getting that education and they're the ones you know like they haven't been running a household for the last 20 years or or the last 10 years even and making decisions that and 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 are stuck in their ways they're like no we're we're doing things my way now and um i know that i know that this is what's best for my family and and it's very heartening to see and i hope that and look the sad part about it is, is that not everyone can afford to buy the type of produce we're talking about. Um, there's still a lot of gaps when it comes to affordability. Um, and unfortunately, like, especially here in the Ilwara we see huge gaps in, in terms of food security and, um, and those sorts of things as well. But, um, hopefully it's something, it, it's something that will continue to sort of perpetuate, um, as more young people get old and educate the next young people. Mm. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> um, the last 12 months, I'm not going to make you relive the, uh, the horrors of <laughs> last summer, our, our bushfire summer, but Conjola was one of the areas that was probably most impacted by the fires. Um, How how'd the farm fare?
4: Uh, look, compared to others, we were, we were pretty good. I mean, we, um, we're nice and high on a ridge, so for three weeks we got to uh, view the whole process. Yeah. which uh, wasn't very pleasant. No, um, We lost some perimeter fencing, uh, but that was about it, like I said, compared to others. Yeah, um, yeah look, it was a really difficult time, um, but I think, like all these things, you come out the other side um, and everyone has worked extremely well together. Um, I think uh, there's a real buzz about the place, um, and that's a whole lot of factors. I mean, COVID has actually been quite good to the south coast, I think, because we've had a whole lot of people come in. But I think if you backtrack there, um, I mean, I've been going to the area for 25 years. For 20 of those years, the area would best be described as a food desert. There was just nothing. Banisters came in, Alex started St Isidore, and it just slowly started. In the last five years, it's really started to kick with a whole lot of other people coming in. There's a, a really great local movement of people who are interested in food, um and then that has just the last six months has just absolutely taken off Mm. um the food scene on the south coast at the moment is absolutely
3: booming yeah Uh,
4: and i think that's a wonderful thing for everyone
3: yeah cool well it's exciting to be in the middle of it as well do you want to tell us a bit about the COVID experience for people like yourselves reese what about you know in in terms of what you guys were doing i mean we've heard six sorry is you know triumphs and tears and all sorts of different things that have happened throughout covid like even in the butcher in sydney and and then across working at the farm and things like that as well like i re- i remember you know being down the south coast in maroochydie when when the fires are happening and um you know and through covid as well like going to going to the supermarkets and there was nothing there and and then people looking for their local producer to to find yeah. food
2: yeah yeah My friend's an organic veggie grower, and he was saying he had to stay at the farm because people were coming to steal veggies. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and it's crazy though um, that when you're cut off, when the supermarkets are cut off, um, that there's no food down there, but there's all this. So where does food come from if it doesn't come (laughs) to the supermarket? Maybe people woke up a bit and saw that they can they can buy local produce, and there is an alternative. is quite interesting but COVID COVID in Sydney was crazy we were just we'd get bodies of beef and then they'd be minced in a day and, and walk out the door or as sausages people were just you can't call it anything else but panic buying um, yeah. and it was quite good for small butchers because the supermarkets run out of meat so where are they going to go they come to the local butcher and it also means they might they might like what they get and, and you retain them as a customer that's what, that's, that's so, what I
1: was thinking yeah where well, was the worry um, see we'd Co- I mean, the fires and, and, and in covid it was the we throughout restaurants where were where was all this meat going to go and that was the, kind of the knock-on worry for everyone yeah. in hospitality was like uh, like you know when we come back out of this is it like are we really getting any produce like like who's going to be growing like that was that was kind of a worry so to see that that turnaround and be able to find other avenues was 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 heartening to uh, to know that these people were going to be still there when when restaurants could open back up so i mean i guess that that has probably opened up a lot of uh avenues you might be looking at in the future or things that you 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 pivoted towards uh during covid um so is there there anything that's come out of that that you've now laid plans for for the future
4: the price of beef's gone through the roof
3: (laughs) and continues to go through the roof
4: so breed beef is is what i say yeah Uh, i mean the the price has doubled yeah well uh, for a number of reasons Mm. um but yeah, the, and demand's gone up. Yeah, as Ray said, everyone's. Uh, I think it's just changed the way people look at the world in mm. terms of their food and, and, and everything. And I, to me, um, it's going to be a positive thing.
1: Mm. I mean, when you say the beef's doubled, it's probably back to a price that it should have been originally, rather than you uh, oh,
4: are na- now, now making money. Right. Three, three years of drought didn't help. Yeah. And, and 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 now it's yes, exactly. It's sustainable.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And to wrap up. Um, I mean, you guys have got... You're producing animals. You're butchering the animals. You're selling them. You're value-adding, making charcuterie and broths and all the rest of it. Um, People are coming to the farm, doing workshops and things like that as well. And you've got accommodation on the farm. Correct. Anything I'm forgetting?
4: We do events. Events on the farm. So do
3: weddings and stuff too? Yes, indeed. Yeah, weddings. Dinner parties. All sorts of things. Great. And uh, so then, like... I mean, you've got a farm. What, what what else? Anything else in store for 2021? We find oh, look, ourselves at the To beginning. be honest,
4: what you've just said probably keep us a little bit busy. Keep you busy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and look...
3: Uh, I reckon you've got a few more hours in uh, your race. I, uh, yeah. I
4: can't sort of <laughs> say where this is going to end up because it's driven by the customers, driven by what people want. Mm. Um, and, and you know, in, in some aspects of the business we're doing, we're just trying to keep up with with, yeah. with demand. Um, and the, the reality of what we're doing is... Um, our product is limited, and that's what we do and, and who we are. We've only got so many cattle and so many pigs and everything else. Um, but, yeah, to me, it's, this is just going to be driven by what people want.
3: Cool. Awesome. All right. Let's leave it there. Good way to end it. Thank you, Jess. Thanks, Thanks guys. Appreciate thank the opportunity. Much. Thanks for Thank you. Us. Hello, dear listeners, Steph here. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Food Fight. If you wanna get in touch with us, it's at the Food Fight Podcast on Instagram or the food fight Podcast at gmail.com. We wanna hear from you and we wanna to talk to you. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That really helps. If you wanna hit me up, it's quicksandfood.com or at quicksandfood on Instagram. And if you wanna get in touch with Simon, it's Simon underscore Evans underscore TBD on Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in we'll catch you again with another episode.